So this morning, we, be, we get back to our, our series that we are calling Out of the Box. This series where we are wrestling with some of the tough questions that, are, that we see in Scripture. And this series really is an opportunity for you to discover more deeply who God is, that you would be drawn into deeper worship. And it's true for the question that we're going to wrestle with today. Not all of these questions have simple answers. And that is going to force us to stand in attention between this God who invites us to know him, but also this God whose ways are beyond our own. And the bottom line for this series is, is that you would realize God's invitation to you to actually know him in and despite of the mystery. Because when God reveals himself to you, he's got a funny way of refusing to stay in the neat and tidy boxes that we have a habit of putting him into. And so this morning, we're gonna explore the question, how do we understand a God of compassion who deals harshly with certain people? And we're gonna explore this question through the lens of, of Joshua and the battle of Jericho. So let me say this right out of the gate. It is a rather common objection to Christianity or a question about Christianity. Why is there a seemingly, a seeming disparity or a seeming difference between what we see in the Old Testament versus what we see in the New Testament? Or even more pointedly around the Old Testament specifically, why do you all pick some things to follow out of the Old Testament but not others? Isn't that being inconsistent? And the very basic answer to that question is that the, the ceremonial laws, the purity laws, really laws that were part of the Old Testament system of worship that sacrificial system built around a temple, those laws no longer have jurisdiction over us. Because as followers of Jesus, he is our sacrifice once and for all. And we find our holiness, our purity because of Christ. And so those ceremonial and purity laws that applied to God's people millennia ago no longer have a purpose for us. But what does not change is God's moral law. And the moral law is quite simply how God has laid out life to work best. The moral law, don't murder, don't steal. This is what sexual purity looks like. Again, how God has, has laid out life to work best. Those laws don't change. And so while that concept of, of God's moral law gets pushed back in our culture, the explanation for why do you all pick some things that you'll follow out of the Old Testament but not others, that explanation is pretty straightforward. But the reason that we chose this morning to wrestle with this question is that, that it's, it's this question here that speaks directly to God's character. This question here that, that, that makes us ask the question, so what is God like? Because it seems like scripture can, can give us a mixed message about what God is like. In the New Testament, we see this from Jesus. Love your neighbor as yourself. God blesses those who work for peace for they will be called the children of God. You've heard the law that says love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. About God in the New Testament, we see statements like this from the Apostle Paul. But when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us. 
not because of the righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. Even in the Old Testament, we see this about God. Yahweh the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. We just sung about that. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. The Lord is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. The Lord is good to everyone. He showers compassion on all his creation. In two weeks, we're gonna talk about Jonah. And Jonah says this about God, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And so we've got all these places in scripture that talk to God's incomprehensible love. And yet we come to the story of Joshua as Joshua is leading the people into the land that is going to be theirs. And as they come upon the city of Jericho, we see this. This is Joshua chapter six, starting in verse one. It says, now the gates of Jericho were tightly shut because the people were afraid of the Israelites. No one was allowed to go out or in, but the Lord said to Joshua, I have given you Jericho, its king, and all its strong warriors. You and your fighting men should march around the town once a day for six days. Seven priests will walk ahead of the ark, each carrying a ram's horn. On the seventh day, you are to march around the town seven times with the priests blowing the horns. When you hear the priests give one long blast on the ram's horns, have have all the people shout as loud as they can, then the walls of the town will collapse and the people can charge straight into the town. Dropping down to verse 15. On the seventh day, the Israelites got up at dawn and marched around the town as they had done before. But this time they went around the town seven times. The seventh time around, as the priests sounded the long blast on their horns, Joshua commanded the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the town. Dropping down to verse 20. When the people heard the sound of the ram's horns, they shouted as loud as they could. Suddenly the walls of Jericho collapsed and the Israelites charged straight into the town and captured it. They completely destroyed everything in it with their swords. Men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, goats, donkeys. And this is done at God's direction. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, we see this. In these towns that the Lord your God is giving you as a special possession, destroy every living thing. Here's what the atheist Richard Dawkins says about God from scenes like Joshua chapter six. It's from his book, The God Delusion. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. That's why this is one of the toughest questions coming out of the Old Testament. And while it would be easier to just ignore this and not talk about this, we're not gonna do that. Because it is imperative for us to understand what God is like, who he is as much as we can. So what is God like? Is what Dawkins says, is that true? Is God bipolar? Is he loving one instance and then he switches on the fly and turns into something truly frightening? Is God spiteful and cruel? 
Scholars speak to what we see here in Joshua chapter six. Scholars would say that God's people is ancient bronze age people. This all out war is normal for the day. And they're quick to point out that God's people are no longer a geopolitical entity, a theocracy like we see in Joshua's day. So that any us versus them thinking that invokes passages like this, that is to be immediately dismissed. Scholars point out that, that, that God's directive to conduct total war against the people of Jericho and, and all of the Canaanites, that was reserved for the Canaanites only. Other enemies outside the land that God was giving to Joshua and his people were to be offered terms of peace. That's a concept that's not normal during the Bronze Age. Scholars point out that that God warns his own people that they will face devastation themselves if they conduct themselves like the Canaanites did who performed, my version of the Bible says, detestable acts in the worship of their gods, including child sacrifice. Some scholars talk to the size of Jericho and, and the scene that we see here saying that, that archaeology tells us that Jericho was only about 10 acres big, some 500 feet by 1,500 feet. And that due to its compact size, primarily military personnel and those serving the military would have been inside Jericho because it had to be small enough to walk around seven times. It had to be small enough for, for two spies that slipped into Jericho to be noticed. Wait a minute, I don't recognize those guys. Do they belong here? And while these ideas help us, they still do not answer the primary question, what is God like? And so as we wrestle with this, I am indebted to the thinking of, of Chris Candia, the author of a book that we are using as a resource for this series called Paradoxology, Why Christianity Was Never Meant to Be Simple. And Candy uses a brilliant illustration that helps us here. It is the illustration of a movie. So on Friday night, my son Luke and I and one of his friends, we want to see the new Godzilla movie. So this graphic is not from the new Godzilla movie. This is classic Godzilla, my favorite. But do you know what happens if you jump into a Godzilla movie about 90 minutes into the movie? You've got no clue what's going on, right? So there's this, there's this giant monster moth flying around there is a three-headed flying dragon. There is Godzilla and lots of buildings get crushed. But, but if you were to jump into that movie 90 minutes in, you would have no idea what is going on, but it would force you to ask, so, so, so what happened before this knockout, drag out giant monster fight? How did we get here? And if we apply the same question to the storyline of God's people moving against Jericho and the rest of the very bloody conquest of Canaan, how did we get here? We start to see God's character revealed. We see that this storyline is, is not that God directed his people on a rampage on a whim. This storyline has been hundreds of years, at least in the making. So what is the storyline? And it is a storyline of justice. 
If you've been raised in church, stories of God's judgment are not new. As a matter of fact, it's these kind of Bible stories that are a a staple of Sunday school. Noah and the ark. What happens to the people that aren't inside the ark? Moses crossing the sea. What happens to the Egyptian army? God working through the agency of David to kill the giant Goliath, the super weapon of the Philistines who were opposing God's people. Goliath gets killed and we teach our kids to sing about this. And the giant came a tumbling down. Now you know I'm not on the praise team. We hold that there is a day of reckoning, a day of final justice that is yet to come and that will be a day of great unimaginable sorrow for those outside a relationship with God. So so the concept of judgment, of divine justice is part and parcel with believing in a holy and sinless and sovereign God who is the creator and the righteous judge of the universe. So back to my movie analogy, what is the storyline? Candy explains it like this. Centuries before, God had asked Abraham to leave his home in Ur and go to a country that God would show him. The country was the land of Canaan. Abraham and his descendants would be homeless nomads for four centuries. Abraham was not given a reason for the hardships his descendants would face, although ironically, it was during this time of captivity that one might argue they found their identity as a nation. But it appears that God was giving the indigenous inhabitants time, time to show their true character, either to get worse or to change their sinful practices. If God was being merciful to the Canaanites, he did so at great expense of his chosen people, letting them be slaves and strangers in the land of Egypt, then bringing them out only for them to become starving wilderness campers. God's patience in giving the Canaanites extra time stands in stark contrast contrast to the first impression we get if we just jump in at Joshua of God randomly wiping out the Canaanites on a whim. God is not a a bad-tempered bully who annihilates nations without cause. He's more like a compassionate gardener who wants to see good come but will take action eventually if it doesn't. God's patience is very long, but in the end, he has to act. This is the consistent message in the Bible. That God is patient to the extreme, continuing his faithfulness to us despite our unfaithfulness to him. Sacrificing what, what is precious to him, his own son, for the sake of whoever may turn to him. We see this exact same point in 2 Peter chapter 3, but you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. We actually see this in in this story of Joshua and the battle of Jericho, even with, with God's direction to completely destroy the people of Canaan, we see the family of Rahab, not just Rahab herself, but the family of Rahab, they are saved and why? Here's what Rahab says to the spies who are scoping out Jericho. This is Joshua chapter two, verse nine. I know the Lord has given you this land, she told them. 
We are all afraid of you. Everyone in the land is living in terror for we heard how the Lord made a dry path for you through the Red Sea when you left Egypt. And we know what you did to, to Sihon, Sihon and Og, the two Amorite kings east of the Jordan River whose people you completely destroyed. No wonder our hearts have melted in fear. No one has the courage to fight after hearing such things for the Lord your God is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. And so Rahab comes to terms what is happening here, acknowledges God and is saved. She finds life despite her people, despite her past. She encounters God's patient mercy. This is what God is like. Some of us might not be comfortable with the idea of God as judge when looking at this story in Joshua chapter six through very modern eyes. But being uncomfortable with this story actually puts God in a pickle. If God acts to bring justice, we get allegations like those from Richard Dawkins, that God is a monster. Yet if he fails to bring justice, the allegation against him is that he doesn't care or he can't bring justice. Either way, through very modern eyes, we set God up and we put him in an impossible situation. If you follow Dawkins' logic, because he can't come to grips with what God is like, he writes God completely out of the story. His atheism explains evil in this world as random and meaningless. That's simply the kind of world that we live in. Bad things happen, suck it up. There is no hope of divine justice setting the wrongs to right. I wonder how many of us have experienced or witnessed something deeply wrong, something truly unjust, a deep and cutting painful injustice. And where do you instinctually go with that? Somebody has got to bring justice here. Somebody has got to change this and bring right to this wrong. Somebody has got to do something. And the reason that we go there instinctually is because our need for justice is embedded in the human heart. That's why all the classic fairy tales are all about some great evil being conquered and justice and right prevailing in the end. And they all live happily ever after. Why are our fairy tales like that? It's not just that you want justice. It is embedded in your heart. You need justice. But we also need, and this is embedded in the human heart as well, we also need to know love. And so if we come back to our question, what is God like? It is only in Jesus. And most poignantly in the cross of Jesus that you are going to find both justice and love both judgment and mercy inextricably linked. On the cross, God delivers as righteous judge the justice, the penalty for our sin, doesn't deliver that justice on us, the rightful bearers of that judgment, but on Jesus. And this is the greatest demonstration of love that our world will ever know. So what is God like? 
It's only in Christianity that you will find a God who is both righteous judge and comes to us to take the penalty, the punishment demanded by his own righteous judgment. It's only in Christianity that you are going to find that kind of kindness. And so this question, how do we understand the God of compassion who deals harshly with certain people rather than train wreck our faith as Richard Dawkins asserts? The question becomes foundational for our faith because it points to the cross. As the God of great compassion and as the God who must put the wrongs to right, his his character demands it. God in the flesh, Jesus gives his life so that you and I might have life. And because we believe that God is both a God of justice and a God of love and that there is a day of final justice coming, that should, that should move us with urgency to share what God is like. That should move us with urgency to show through our lives tangibly what God is like to a hurting and dying world around us. May our hearts echo the apostles Apostle Paul's heart, who writes this in 1 Timothy. This is a trustworthy saying and and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I am the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. All honor and glory to God forever and ever. He is the eternal king, the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God. Amen.